We could do a whole episode on Buffy. In fact, that's probably what I would have suggested if um, if I'd realised that you were that big a fan. I am up for it. I have a, I still have a JSTOR uh, subscription, <laughs> and there are dozens, honestly, dozens of, of academic articles on Buffy. So if, if if this podcast, if this episode's a success, I will be back and do a Buffy episode, even though loads of Buffy podcasts exist already. Yeah, we'll do a special. We'll do a special on Buffy. You may know, I'm an obsessive Buffy fan, and a couple of summers ago, I watched all, like, seven seasons of it in Italy. I could have been, like, eating great food and, like, walking through the mountains. I was. Most of my day was taken up by watching all seasons of Buffy. And if you remember, that was on TV at 6.45 on BBC Two on Tuesday evenings when it was first on TV. And I was looking back at it thinking, what? Like, no way is this okay for that time. I, I do I do remember Buffy. It was probably the television series which was most formative in my early teens. It shaped my whole life and I also rewatched it recently. It started I think when I was pregnant and I started binge watching Buffy because I was so delighted. I had been waiting for it to come onto a platform for free, probably for years. Suddenly it did. I had access to it and I watched like all is it seven, no, six, six or seven series back to back over the course of a bunch of weeks uh, while completely hormonal and enjoyed every minute of it, but also was astonished how much it shaped me. Um, there are jokes in the series uh, that I tell, which I did not know I had picked from, <laughs> from Xander. <laughs> and then, um, you know, lucky me, but I realised in series one, um, to my astonishment, that I effectively married Angel. So a young David Barinas is is my husband 10 years ago. And um, that is the extent to which Buffy has imprinted on my life. And um, she's my go-to superhero. I, I loved, I love the show, I still do. This is a fact that I always, I always trot this fact out. I really hope it's true. Um, but I believe it is the most like academically studied um, kind of work of media, be it like film or TV series, um, because of the different angles that you can study it from, be it like the, the fantasy angle or the feminist article um, angle or the LGBT angle. Um, I also feel like she's definitely the best. When I watch a TV show or a film, I never like the main character. Buffy's the only series where the main character is the best character because of the the narrative arc that she goes through. Excellent. I think if I talk about it anymore, I'm going to have to like stop this call and just go. <laughs> <laughs> if I can, if I can get past five episodes of this, <laughs> we'll do a Buffy special to celebrate. Right. Well, so far I am loving this echo chamber. <laughs> no, the, the echo. I mean, this. I. I don't pretend that this podcast would be anything else. So the idea came uh, for me essentially to to make something for my friends. I have just got to the point where if another person tells me that they've lived through recessions, that there have been other recessions before, I'm going to scream. Um, because we graduated and it wasn't just any recession that we lived through and worked through at the beginning of our careers. It was the great recession. 
the name that <laughs> economists have given this for posterity was the Great Recession. So first of all, if you if you know if you were around in the 1970s or whatever and experienced the Iranian oil crisis, good for you. But it ain't got nothing on the Great Recession. Now we're looking at an economic downturn, the likes of which we haven't seen in a century. And there's only been 10 years since the last one started, which means people like you and I are going to spend the best working years of our life in economic climates where we'll be lucky if we get to old age and and have a pension at all or anything to, you know, <laughs> anything to rest our heads on. We'll probably both end up in the same nursing home as whatever government at that point lets another deadly virus ravage through. Mm -hmm. We'll just, you know, we can see which one of us lasts longest. Um, like a Hunger Games style, but say in a care home. <laughs> I'd be up for that. Yeah, so what, I mean, what's life been like for you lately? So I, I can't complain. Because with my hands up and I say I cannot complain. I uh, was able to work from home and I had a workplace which facilitated that. Um, you know, I live in a part of the world where there's a good internet connection uh, and all those, all those little things. Uh, my own device and so on and so forth, which, you know, I acknowledge that a, a lot of people do not have. Um, in terms of kind of quality, I'm trying to say, in terms of kind of like quality of life and, and change of life, I am, uh, I'm very much a house cat. So even like pre-pandemic, sure, I'd be going out for drinks, going out for meals, um, traveling, going to see everything at the fringe, yes, but to be honest, I am more than happy, like in my own skin, in my own company, um, binge watching, binge, re binge reading, binge podcasting. I, I'm okay with that. I don't really get cabin fever. So I kind of feel like I was ready. <laughs> I was like made for this pandemic. Um, the biggest shakeup, I guess, was um, I guess both me and my partner working from home from a one bed flat, which has its challenges, but you know, so far so good. Um, I guess something that's particular to my situation is that we decided to move my 71-year-old mum in with us into our box room on an inflatable bed. No, we did not give her our bed. Sue me. Um, but so, you know, that was... <laughs> Maybe if you spoke to Andy, he'd say something different. But it was... Um, we had great meals. Uh, it was a great way of connecting with her in a different way. Um, I think what this situation has um, thrown up is that it has made people interact in a different way and, you know, loads of people have said loads on that already. What prompted that decision? What prompted that decision to move your mum in? I was already on holiday on my Easter break by then, so we were just like, just come stay with us and you'll be exposed to less. So that, that was it. We didn't have an end game <laughs> in, in sight. I think when she like cheekily went to co-op without telling us, we were like, okay, I, I guess you're... <laughs> I guess you're good to go then. That, that was the rationale. And, you know, it was my interaction with mum as a kid was that she was always, you know, in, working in the chippy. Uh, and then as an adult, it was going around, she'd make the big Sunday meal and that was it. But it was nice to actually interact with her on a more human level, spending extended periods of time together. Uh, she 
got into reading. She was plowing through like a book a week. And I, I never seen my mum read a book in her life. She didn't have time. We taught her how to use a smartphone and now we still keep in touch on WhatsApp and all those little things. It's, it's, um, it's lovely actually. Yeah. But you know, I, so luckily I, I have been in a, a good position to handle this pandemic kind of professionally, but also personally, because I don't like the outside. <laughs> worked for quite a while uh, as, as a young man in your family's chip shop. Mm. Are there things that that taught you? Massively. I could, I could honestly write a book. It was a great leveler in the sense that, and you will get chippies in nice areas and not so nice areas. Decreasingly so, but they will be family run and they will be in the community for a long time. So they're kind of like pubs, like you'll have your, your locals and your, and your regulars and you really get to know a community, which is lovely. Incidentally, I, I, I live around the corner from where my parents' chippy was. Um, and um, you get all sorts coming in, all sorts. We had um, everyone from homeless people to members of the European Parliament coming in for a fish supper. And you meet such a cross-section of society, which can only be a useful thing. You are always having to present yourself positively and optimistically, um, which I think gives me good like patience for being a teacher now. And I think also in my more public facing roles when I was working in politics too, teaches you resilience to go into politics serving fish suppers to members of european parliament oh, absolutely i mean and the funny thing was is that because i was so i was kind of always in and out of the chippy um as a kid but then also as a student and so i recognized when when meps came in i'd be like oh you're a blah blah and they'd be a bit like yes so i think they were a bit unsettled but uh all those things it was um you know resilience and also my parents really, my parents really had pride in their work. We didn't, we didn't buy crap. We didn't sell crap. Um, we bought really good quality fish, really good quality potatoes. Uh, we made our dough and our, and our pizza sauce really uh, nicely. And it was like pride in work. You know, my, my parents didn't go to university, um, barely got their secondary education. Uh, but they really taught me that regardless of what you do, you should always do it well and with love and with meaning. Uh, and so yes, invaluable experience. Who'd have thought? You're a teacher now at one of the UK's most elite schools. You were in politics for many years. What caused the decision to go from working in politics to teaching? Um, it is... Mm, it's a disappointingly simple story. Um, I, uh, so my partner and I were living in London at the time and we uh, took a walk into Greenwich Park and we sat down and it was a, a sunny Saturday afternoon. And I was talking about all these things that I wanted to do, but I was never really getting around to doing. And uh, I was in a job, you know, which enabled me to get by and I could do easily enough. And I really, you know, liked working with my colleagues. But there was something missing. And as we were talking about what I was good at, um, what I liked doing and what I wanted from a job, it was Andy that said, mm, so given this, this and that, why have you never considered being a teacher? And I went, oh yeah. And that was it. That was it. 
I honestly never looked back. As you may remember, at uni and on a year abroad, like teaching was something I, I stayed so far from. The minute the word was mentioned, I was like, no way. The, ma the main push factor, I think, for me from politics was that even if I got a better paid job or a more prestigious job or one where I traveled more, or even if I joined the civil service, you are um, ultimately always making someone else look good. Uh, and in the process, you'd be helping people with their problems, as I often had to do when I was a caseworker. And so that was, that was useful and satisfying. But I just wasn't mm, doing it for me anymore. But making, making kids look good, giving kids a skill, because uh, I'm a language teacher, uh, broadening their horizons a bit, um, sharing my favorite like books and movies with them like that's that's fun and teenagers are funny and um, honestly i'll be having the most rubbish day but i will be i will laugh um every day at work even though one of them said okay boomer to me once which i took a lot of offense to <laughs> okay all this week trending on linkedin has been an article uh, asking is it time for a career change and i think the moment you had on the park bench uh, with Andy is kind of a moment that we're all having right now. Everyone suddenly had a moment, whether they wanted to or not, for their lives to slow down, to spend more time at home. Um, and lots of people are asking really deep questions about, you know, what's the meaning of all this? What's my place in the world? Do I enjoy what I'm doing? Do I enjoy where I'm going? But they're facing this really tough economic situation and you've got the angel on one shoulder saying you know just follow your heart and do what you've always wanted to do and then maybe this sort of economic devil saying this is the worst time you could ever pick for changing anything mm -hmm. how, how do you do you think there's ever a good time to make a career change do you think um, that people should still be willing to take risks at a time like this when they've maybe got mortgage, young kids. It's really hard and I'd be interested to see what kind of effects this will have on our generation when we look back on ourselves. Because I think our, you know, our baby boomers, because of what maybe they and their parents lived through, their attitude is very much get a job, stay in it till you die, the end because security is the most important thing. I would hate for that to be the mindset of our current teenagers and of us, you know? I, I think it's really limiting. What's thrown into focus is, you know, I, I have been able to go from job to job whenever I saw something better come around without much problem. And now there's a, not just like an existential fear, but like a very real fear of, of doing that now ultimately the world's still spinning right things people will still keep leaving jobs people will still keep coming into and out of the workforce people will keep traveling things still need to get done and so i think as we've already seen it has been a good catalyst for change and to use a cliche thinking outside the box and so i think people will still keep doing their thing, maybe even more, but will that be the privilege of the wealthy, childless few? Probably.
but it would be a, it would be a shame if there was like a a three sixty because I feel like people our age and maybe people a bit older were able to I'm gonna go here I'm gonna do that course I'm gonna study there I'm gonna do that job now and it would be a real shame if you kind of regressed back to the oh God you should be grateful for having a job pay half of it to the you know because you're mortgaged to the hilt and then die <laughs> I think that would be and then die nursing home yeah. <laughs> virus ravaging you and your friends. <laughs> exactly. The EU's also been a lot in the news lately. The EU somewhere where you worked during your career in politics. I've, I have mixed feelings about what's going on right now in that the fact that this 750 billion corona bond deal was done is one of the biggest jumps forward in, in European integration that we've yeah. seen in a decade. Yeah. On the other hand, you've got the fact that several countries wanted to have provisions in there to potentially prevent the Polands and Hungarys of this world from deviating too much from European values as identified within the institutions of the European Union. How do you feel about what's going on in Hungary and Poland right now? What it throws into sharp focus is the fact that we have taken progress for granted and we have assumed that the world will always just magically get better by itself there was you know a presumption that after the cold war russia you would you know come in from the cold and be part of the you know the western european fold after the the treaty agreement giving hong, hong kong back to china there was a complete underestimation being like china would definitely want to you know play by our rules and be part of our club. So it's a complete, <laughs> like a complete underestimation of a lack of understanding of different world experiences, different worldviews, and I think uh, a presumption that the kind of North American, Western European way of life, values in inverted commas, would kind of prevail by itself was not not just arrogant but clueless i've been listening to a lot of podcasts about um what's happened to the us post obama and there have been a lot of progressives uh people who are a lot more clued up on it than i have that said that during the obama years they were often quite asleep at the wheel is a phrase i keep hearing that they were like right we've liked the black president the end <laughs> and i think that same Arrogance and cluelessness has applied to Central and Eastern Europe, which have got such a variety of experiences and um, uh, such a divergent history to our own in Western Europe. And we just kind of presumed they would become LGBT friendly countries just like that. Or uh, their, their legal systems and uh, press systems would democratize by themselves. And that has not happened. And if you were to say it to someone nowadays, they would say, well, yeah, duh. But, you know, in, in European political discourse, 10 years ago, and certainly when we were studying, that's what we all presumed, right? That, that was the theory. You would enlarge, that you would get better and bigger and stronger, and everyone would just become a version of, you know, Britain, France, or, or Germany, just speaking a different language incredibly arrogant. This, 
is the moment in the show where I ask our guests to discuss um, a new story that they've chosen for themselves. Uh, it's a segment called Why Should We Care? So what, what new story have you picked for us, Vincenzo? So it's a frivolous news story, but I think uh, sheds light on something that I'm really fascinated by. So um, I, you know, I watched Hamilton for the first time on Disney Plus, loved it. Um, and this article uh, piqued my interest from Rolling Stone, uh, which was called Why Gen Z or Gen Z, Why Gen Z Turned on Lin Manuel Miranda. He kind of is the one man show of Hamilton, um, one of America's uh, founding fathers, um, and the cast was majority uh, black and Latino you've probably not living under a rock if you've not heard of Hamilton. I, I haven't mm -hmm. seen it yet, but it's it, it seems to have gone through this honeymoon period where mm -hmm. you were nobody in the United States if you hadn't had tickets to Hamilton. And then swung all the way back around to actually, you know, why are we um, putting the Founding Fathers on any kind of pedestal, you know? Mm -hmm. They were slave owners, they were this, they were that. So it has been at the center of, I think, the public debate in America for quite a while now, but for shifting reasons. Yes. It's been such a, a pendulum swing because I remember when it came out and everyone I knew was obsessed with it. This was, I believe, five or so years ago. And it was praised for so many, praised in its merits as a musical by itself, but praised. Uh, for so many progressive reasons and uh, for mostly reasons of diversity. Uh, and Lynn Manuel Miranda himself is Latino. But the Rolling Stone article, and I think a lot of uh, Gen Z people on social media have been saying, kind of po poking innocent fun at him, but also saying that that's, that's not enough in the sense that who's it for? Was it for like mostly white middle-class musical theatre goers who can pat themselves on the back and said they watched the show with mostly black actors? Well done me. That's my like non-racist good deed for the day. Um, it kind of it kind of reminds me a bit of the um, of the infamous line in the film Get Out where the dad says you know I would have voted for Obama a third time if I could. It's a kind of like lazy white progressive trope. Now any historical media product cannot reflect everything, I get it. But I think the difference between our generation and the younger generations is that we were like, woo, a show with black actors. And then that, and then that was it. <laughs> um, whereas the article talks about how that is not, it's not enough anymore. And in my view, rightly so, you know, people will roll their eyes at that and be like, God, you know, they're never happy, PC brigade, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it's good that our, our teenagers and, and young adults, and I believe Gen Z, so the oldest Gen Z are now basically of graduating age. Yeah. Um, I, I'm excited that this generation is demanding more. If the result of being in that crucible is that you will get people and movies and TV series that do seek to address some of the some of the world's problems, some of the world's problems in representation, 
I think I think the end result will overall be good. Now, should people be nicer to each other in general? Yes, and particularly online, people shouldn't be necessarily like be like you know destroyed for taking a shot at something. But at the same time, I I do overall see it as progress, even anecdotally in how my friends and colleagues talk about things how people react to me and my partner as a gay couple. We are already a world away in terms of social attitudes from 10, even five years ago. You know, same-sex marriage was, was legalized in, uh, in the UK five years ago. And at the time you would hear people make arguments against same-sex marriage, which at the time were considered kind of legitimate, non-homophobic things to say. And now I look back on it, I'm thinking, they were definitely homophobic things to say. Uh, and you know, a lot of the teenagers that I teach now take that for granted. I remember many years ago, you gave me a piece of advice um, while I was writing a cover letter for one of my first internships. When so many people are thinking about career change right now, your advice back then, which I thought was incredibly wise considering the stage of your career. I mean, I think we were less than a year out of university your piece of advice was your cover letter is not about you. That's what your CV is for. Have you got any more gems like that? Oh, but I'm, I'm so touched, thank you. Um, I, I would stick by that advice and I think I have been, the biggest rule is that everything should be short. Everything should be short. It is good to conceptualize a CV and a cover letter as two different things because they are two different things. And how you relate to them and the fact that you know what they are about that is absolutely what you should do in a cover letter. Uh, and if they are both just about you, you're, you're reinventing the wheel. But yeah, something that shows to them, first of all, how you write, how you come across in written communication is a really important thing. Okay, I'll say this. I have had successful jobs, which I've got, where the person hiring me afterwards said, yeah, maybe the other candidate was better, but, um, you seem like someone we'd have to go for a pipe with, so we hired you. <laughs> so, final thought to wrap this up the question I have for you um, is you know, are we going to be the generation that turns this all around, or is it our job to? put everything in place to make sure Gen Z can just break away from the past and send us all into Star Trek land. I, you know, the tabloids will make you think that millennials are self-obsessed. And I don't know if it's just maybe the nature of my job that I'm around Gen Z all the time. From looking at this more philosophically, I feel like it is our time to pass the baton on um, I kind of see stuff that Gen Z are doing that I don't understand. <laughs> and so that's always a sign that you <laughs> you are old. And so I do think on a, on a kind of global philosophical level, we have lived through so much that is incompatible to any other generation. We're the youngest people to remember life pre-internet. Uh, as you said, our experience of working through two, now two crises is again unique. Um, for our stage in life and I think we can be a good intermediary because you know we, we get Gen X we get boomers 
and I'm getting my head around Gen Z every day in my work. Uh, I am optimistic for the future. Um, I think our teenagers are on it. I have immense faith in them. Um, even politically, I've been pro-votes at 16 for a very long time. And you know, it's at different types of schools. I, I teach at a certain type of school. My niece currently goes to the school that I was at, uh, which demographically very different. But what she tells me about her and her friends, I'm like, yeah, you've, you've got this sorted. So I actually think it, we obviously need to do our best. But I think the if we can support our teenagers and young graduates as much as possible, I think that will benefit everyone. And actually going back and going back to trusting young people, I think, you know, when, when you go back to the 60s, JF Kennedy and the moonshot, uh, the Apollo program, I think the average age, of, and yet, yes, most of them were all white men, yeah, but the average age <laughs> of all the scientists, engineers, you know, on that program was like 26, 27, 28. It was young people like that that brought us to the moon. Um, that and a, and a really intense drive to push Russia off. <laughs> I think I think our young people um, are definitely going to change things around. Um, but I think our generation, we've still got some deep work to do to make sure that everything's in place for them, for yeah. sure. Um, well, Vincenzo, thanks very much. This has been a real pleasure. And I look forward to like our Buffy special. Excellent. I was um, honoured to be asked uh, and I had great fun. So thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>